This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. While Germany is generally perceived to be in a position of economic strength, the country faces the same disruptive forces currently rippling through economies around the world. To discuss how Germany is adapting to 21st century market pressures, I'm joined by Wolfgang Fink, the co-CEO of Goldman Sachs in Germany and Austria. Wolfgang, welcome to the program. Thank you. So Germany's home to some of the world's best companies, best recognized companies. What challenges are top of mind for your clients, your German clients, as they navigate an environment that always seems to be changing? Thank you. Yeah, I think the key issue that occupies the German corporate landscape is clearly some that sounds very familiar to people here. It's the ever-changing environment and the periods of change seem to accelerate. There are so many pressures coming from so many angles that a globally active company, and most of these companies are globally active companies, have to basically be on alert nonstop to adapt and to adjust. When you compare this to the past, we had much longer cycles where people had something called planning security, where they could make plans, strategic plans, and execute accordingly. And these days, the disruptive forces, uh, which I'm sure we will be talking about, are massive so that they are constantly on alert. And that has to do with geopolitical risks, that has to do with the economies in various regions of the world, that has to do with the technological changes, that has to do with scarcity of talent and, and competition for talent globally, that has to do with raw materials that Germany is in a way dependent on, as they are no big producer of raw material or have deposit of large raw materials of that size. And it has also to do with demographics, if you look at it, which is an ever-aging population and the supply of new talent to sustain the system, just to name a few. So the big names in German business are pretty well known to uh, global audiences, but some would argue that the country's real economic strength comes from its small and medium-sized companies, the so-called Mittelstand. So for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with your part of the world, give us a little sense of the structure of the German business sector. Yeah, I think the Mittelstand, the so-called mid-sized company, which actually is a pretty wide-ranging definition. I mean, you could have companies that are sort of in terms of market value, a couple of hundred millions up to uh, multi-billion companies, sort of a small, well-established, export-oriented auto supply company next to Bosch, which is probably one of the largest automotive supply companies in the world. So just to say, this is a pretty wide-ranging definition, but if you take the Mittelstand as such, it employs around 60% of the German workforce. And the Mittelstand companies have actually generated over a third of the economies of the German economy's revenues. Hence, they are the driving force between Germans' economic progress. The interesting thing about the Mittelstand is that it's mostly privately owned. So you won't see a lot of public companies, partly public and private owned, but mostly private owned. And so this as, is why the brands aren't so well known exactly. a lot of times because they're manufacturing a good that isn't necessarily a consumer good right. and they have no reason really to raise their public profile. Exactly. So they are mostly B2B, you would say, and they're in niches. Very often they're in pretty small but global niches and they are family owned. And these families usually are focused on privacy and hence, as you said, they are not that well known. Having said that, 
these companies go through succession cycles and within a year alone we would estimate around 20,000 of these companies being up for succession in a way having succession planning to do having to find a successor which is quite a staggering number for this economy and clearly that attracts a lot of interest from within the country but also from international interested parties buyers international groups we still see in industry after industry, whether it's telecom or even banking or in other industries, national champions. You would expect a little bit more consolidation sometimes. Why haven't we seen more of that in Europe? Yeah, it's actually a very interesting question, as you would have expected that. I think you've seen some, clearly, in particular also with respect to mid-sized companies that have consolidated across Europe. But the large-scale consolidation within Europe hasn't happened. I think there are multiple reasons for that. Number one, when you look at acquiring a company, you look at growth in the respective market and how it will enhance your overall business profile. And in many instances, German companies have looked for growth elsewhere. Some of the Central European countries have experienced sluggish growth in many sectors. And so the actual return would have come mostly through rationalization. And when you look at the labor laws of the European Union, it's not that easy to achieve that. So management had a great deal of, let's say, respect to come in as an acquirer, let's say, into an Italian or French company and start restructuring it. it has been very, very tough. It's very difficult. Yeah. We've seen lots of examples yeah, of failure. Lots of failure. Right. And then to get the growth, people first focused on the strongly growing Asian markets. Now, when you look there, it's not that easy to acquire substantial market positions. And so very often the default was the U.S. was a large market which grows nicely and has sort of very established rules how to do things. And people usually had experience with that market because they had a big business there or because they had seen previous examples which have worked. And so that has always taken a priority over internal European consolidation. The other thing is, apart from the growth thing, has been regulation. Sometimes the regulator doesn't want that. If you look at the financial... So there are still national regulators that are acting as national... National regulators, regulators yeah, acting... Protecting in, their own industry. And yeah. protecting the industries. The same was true with some of the German industries, where there are special laws to protect them, and acquirers have found it difficult to come in. And then lastly, the question as to how big a market at the end it is. You acquire a very distinct profile if you acquire a company in Northern Europe, for example, in Sweden or Norway. On the other hand, you do the same in Italy or Spain. It's not necessarily you're getting access to more markets. You're usually getting access to a local market. And you would have to do a couple of them to really make an impact. So rolling it up would be quite an effort as opposed to buy one U.S. company. In say, a big market. In a big market, a yeah. smaller company with massive growth opportunities because the market is just there and it's that big and that homogeneous. So all of that... I think is the status quo. Having said that, with Europe developing, becoming more integrated, sometimes have to integrate more. I think we will see more of that cross-border consolidation. That would be a real opportunity to be more efficient and create more efficiencies in the European market. So we're seeing a wave of disruptive pressures affecting markets around the world. In Germany, is no exception. Obviously, people may overuse this term disruption when they're talking about technology. But you use it to describe a much broader array of developments in the speed of the cycles. What does disruption mean to you in the context of the German economy? Right. Um, you're absolutely right. I think the first term that comes to mind is clearly technological disruption. Now, in Germany, with this very B2B kind of focused economy, it has to do with technology, digitalization, automation of industrial processes. 
So that's clearly one of the centers. Which doesn't get a lot of attention, no, which but doesn't. a lot of productivity gains in recent years have come out of that. Absolutely. I, th I think a driving force between, let's say, the productivity gain in the automotive industry is clearly focused on the automation of automotive production processes, for example. And, and that has a lot to do with digitalization, the new technologies. Now, having said that, disruption, I would say, in Germany is a much broader term. If you take it very broadly, you could say disruption has to do with new regulation coming in in many sectors, has to do with the changes in the commodity markets as input factors for, let's say, the chemical industry or the utilities, energy provision, has to do with new distribution models, i.e. for producers, household goods as an example, or even food and consumer goods that are being affected. Now, that is clearly also affecting the German companies working in these respective sectors. And that means adapt new business models, search for talent. Now, where do they look for adapting to those forces? Clearly, the U.S. has a growing technology sector with lots of disruptors and providers of disruptive technology. But also in Germany, when you look to Berlin and the startup scene there, it's a very active market that delivers new models. A lot of in retail, too, not right. just in retail business space, concepts yeah. that are coming out of. And so you see traditional companies either adapting within the company, i.e. getting talent in, which is very difficult to do, or even as a kind of portfolio approach, investing in those business models. So many of the disruptors of today and tomorrow are sort of founded by and financed by traditional companies. As you said, in retail, the big retailers, for example, all have a portfolio of e-commerce businesses that exactly do what they haven't done or can't do or will have to spend time and effort on doing in future. Which is a different model, obviously, than in the States. Typically, you have a startup that's funded with venture capital money, and then maybe later an incumbent buys it to protect themselves right. or, or right. adapt. Right. So here you see money, but also a lot of money from the respective sectors and industries and families. Again, family-owned companies goes into funding these new business models. So one of the places where disruption is really being felt, and particularly in Germany, is energy. Clean energy was a focus of this year's Hanover Messe, the world's largest industrialist conference. Right. And Germany made a huge policy shift after the Fukushima nuclear uh, disaster in Japan. So how has the increased emphasis on greenhouse gas reduction, along with the de-emphasis of nuclear, changed the German energy sector? Germany has done two things. One, it has clearly promoted renewable energy massively through the respective laws and subsidies. And that relates to wind solar, biomass, all of them. And then on the other hand, it has sort of phased out or started to phase out the traditional energy sources, in particular nuclear. So that put the system under a lot of stress to adapt with the incoming new energy generation, which is dependent on, let's say, wind and solar on the one hand, and just release more and more capacity that has been base load capacity from big nuclear power plants. So far, the system has been able to cope with it. Last year already, we had 33% of the energy sources that supply German demand coming from renewable, which is quite an effort. It's up from close to 10% up from the year before. Probably the highest of an industrialized country. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And there's a massive shift ongoing. Now, obviously, where the strain is being felt is partly in the producing industries that need a lot of energy as input, because clearly this energy is all being equal more expensive than the traditional generation sources. And then the grid itself and the technology to adapt with the volatility of this energy provision and mixing those various sources together has put uh, quite some technological challenges up. But so far, 
this has worked and clearly a big beneficiary was the equipment industry that is supplying all this renewable equipment into the market here. When you fly over parts of Germany, it looks like you're in a tropical country based on the number of solar panels. So another of Germany's most iconic industries, obviously, is the automotive industry. Right. And again, facing a very complex array of headwinds. So there's rising regulatory pressure, changing expectations really of the consumer, and a lot of new competitors in what was a traditionally an industry with very high barriers to entry. Talk a little bit what these changes mean for your clients in the automotive sector and how German firms are adapting. Clearly, three main topics there, at least from my point of view, which is one, the emission regulation per se. You know, all over the world, the emission regulations are getting a lot of focus and getting tougher and tougher. So these companies have to invest a lot to keep up with the new emission standards. And that means that from a certain point on, you will have to move to electric to plug-in hybrid or to full electric vehicle concept, which for the industry is a massive shift, not only in production, but also in design and in supplies that they need to produce the cars. The second aspect is the digitalization, which is not only in production process, but also in the car. The content of software and electronics is constantly rising, and you need to have the people and the systems to supply that know-how and those systems. And then lastly, it's the connectivity. So we're all talking about the self-driving car, the autonomous driving car, and that's a clear shift towards increasing functionality that is being done by the machine as opposed to the human being driving the car. So self-driving cars are not a fiction, they are pretty real. Large parts of the car can already do that. That has to do with sensors, that has to do with systems that automatically correct certain behaviors of the car. And all of that requires massive investment. The industry has spent around 34 billion altogether last year. So in capital spend. In capital spend, and yeah. in F&E and capital spend. And a third of that goes to software and digitalization and new technologies. So there's a massive shift. Having said that, it requires sometimes a totally different thinking as well to construct a car, which is an electric car, as opposed to a traditional combustion engine driven car. And hence, those kind of know-how, not only from the parts of the car, but also from the whole layout and the whole functionalities, to mix that with traditional German car engineering philosophy is quite a task. Tesla constructed a car which is totally driven by software engineers that look at the car and say, this is what the car has to do for us. Looking at it as yeah. systems, right. a series of systems. Right. Yeah. As opposed to the traditional car manufacturing, which has always looked at safety and certain impact that the car has to withstand at certain speeds and all of that. And to mix both of them, as I said, is quite a task. And it's also a search and a war for talent in that space who can basically integrate these systems and construct the next generation car. So we're talking software engineer, software systems, sometimes very small businesses that are only being bought because of the engineers and their capabilities in there. And hence the German car manufacturing industry has to massively shift to this new world, to this new talent, to this new way of working and looking and designing a car. On the other hand, they still have to keep up with the traditional kind current of, demand, uh, model yeah, cycles yeah, and, yeah. And, and current demand in order to sustain their profits that are still driven by large upmarket diesel and gasoline engine cars that are being sold in Europe, the US and China in particular, and they deliver the profits. The low growth environment in Europe has given rise to a low interest rate environment and is also partly responsible for the increased volatility in global markets we saw in the first quarter of this year. How has that volatility affected client sentiment in Germany, particularly when it comes to 
their appetite for deal making. Germany always has been a bit slower than other countries embarking on large scale M&A. Boards have been more cautious as to their ability to integrate and deliver synergies. And hence, when you look at the M&A volumes globally in Europe and in Germany, you would always see that Germany was somewhat weaker in this respect. Well, it's partly a function of the outsized influence of the Mittelstand too, right? Which is not a you know they're not as prone to be making these big transformative deals right. as larger corporates. Right. There's always been a suspicion in the Mittelstand of the use of leverage, so they tend to finance with very high equity portions or no debt virtually, i.e., out of cash flow, and hence the idea to lever up to do a big acquisition wasn't that prominent. Now we see some of that receding. And people see that they need to move. And if you think about it, in the Western industrial base, there are only so many spots that you can occupy. And I think it dawns to many of those corporate leaders that in order to occupy certain positions in a Western economy, you have to move and you have to make deals. Otherwise, these positions are no longer available because they are consolidated away from you. So that sentiment is slowly shifting. But clearly, the low interest environment hasn't made a big mark on the German corporates to be forward-leaning on acquisitions. And in terms of the consumer, the consumer has been holding up well, although the fact that the savings rates are going down dramatically... Germany is a savings country. Germany is a savings culture, has kind of put a damper on the spending. And if you follow the European Central Bank, they're still not happy or not satisfied with the type of consumption levels that they would like to stimulate through some of their policies. Chinese companies were very active last year in outbound M&A within Europe, particularly in Germany. Do you expect that kind of activity by Chinese acquirers to continue? I think between China and Germany often is a win-win. China offers a huge market, sometimes not entirely accessible for German companies because of, again, coming back to the Mittelstand topic, the systems, the kind of networks to be conquering an economic term in a country like China. So there is a market which Chinese companies can help opening for German companies. German companies have technology which Chinese companies badly need. And so you have seen a lot of interest in that respect. A couple of deals have been done. Remember the example of Kion, a German company active in the logistics handling space where they have a large Chinese owner by now, main shareholder who supports them very actively. So these type of examples exist, and we think that there is a secular movement for the Chinese economy to get this technology, for the German companies to keep this market in China and grow it. So we'll see much more or many more of those deals. And as we have heard multiple times, Germany within Europe is the key target for Chinese outbound investment. So a lot of German manufacturers, as you said, have been big exporters to Chinese manufacturing sector, but China's shifting its economy a bit away from the manufacturing sector into a trying to achieve a more consumer-driven, consumer-led economy. So how does that shift as China transforms itself, affecting some of these German manufacturers who've been really seeing dramatic gains in Chinese exports? A lot has been said about that, and clearly, if it were to happen, it is net-net a negative for the German economy because of the focus on capital goods and the fact that Germany has been one of the main beneficiaries of this capex investment cycle, the capital expenditure investment cycle that China has gone through. If they were to move more to a consumer economy, there were less German companies that would be very dominant in the spaces that this new economic model would focus on. Having said that, we don't see it really because 
when you look at some of the numbers and some of what these companies tell us, there's still a pretty robust demand. Clearly, when you look, for example, in the construction industries and the downturn in China construction, that makes it marks on the German equipment suppliers. When you look into auto, for example, which is a consumer cyclical good targeted toward more wealthy audiences in China, usually because it's a premium kind of offering, it's pretty robust demand still and pretty good margins. So we have to see how this pans out. But clearly, if China were to move more drastically to that position, then the German economy would be softer there. And this has been one of their key export spots that they have occupied for years. So to close, let's talk about the road ahead for German companies, a slightly longer term view. What are you telling clients about the raft of disruptive pressures we've discussed here today? And what do those organizations need to do to continue to stand amongst the world's best? We are very much focusing on to be able to get the best of what we have in terms of the technological service, people, other inputs that are available there into those companies and to get out of the very localized kind of view of the world and take a very broad view. And that means not only in terms where research is being done, where talent is being hired, how they look at spinning off businesses that have done not that well, and we've seen some of that as well, freeing them up, trying to consolidate them differently, i.e. accelerating corporate development in order to be ready to deal with disruptive forces. And again, both internally on an organic, if you want, way and externally in terms of M&A growth. Being more flexible, for example, on production, using some of the very high quality, highly paid production bases for outsourcing for other companies, being more flexible in that sense, thinking more about reinventing some of the distribution as opposed to the traditional models of distribution. And clearly, as I said, occupying some of the international positions that they have been slow to occupy so far in order to spread the risk. Because the more sort of domestic and focused on a traditional high cost production model they are, the more vulnerable they are to exactly the forces you have been describing. And that could be, again, through organic growth on the one hand and organic initiative on the one hand, but also through acquisitive and through M&A. Sometimes it is very enlightening for those companies to spend a week talking to entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley or in Israel or in China and just see how they see the world for those CEOs and top managements. To and the come pace back. at which they change. And the pace, exactly, and to come back and just say, look, we need to start our own approach in this sense. We can't just sit there and wait until we are being disrupted. And some of them had no choice. When you look at the traditional energy provider, the utilities, and what we discussed in terms of the change of the energy mix, they had to adapt. They had to find a new business model. Being producers of renewable energy suddenly, as opposed to traditional thermal or nuclear, having new distribution models for the energy, trying to capture more along the value chain, also in terms of smart energy, smart consumption models, and all of that. And they had to do it because their traditional business model was being disrupted overnight. So that's what we are advising on and we have the dialogue on. M&A can be a solution there. Corporate finance can help to finance those. But a lot of this has to come internal and has to be grown internally. It takes a lot of resources and sometimes completely new talent being brought in, Apple engineers being brought into VW or Daimler to help designing a new infotainment system and thinking differently about how to connect with devices, those type of things which you can't force somebody to do purely internally because of the lack of experience and the lack 
of let's say the inspiration that is coming elsewhere and this kind of transfer is i think will keep this industry alive wolfgang thank you very much for joining us today. it's fascinating that concludes this episode of exchanges at goldman sachs i'm jake seward we hope you join us again next time This podcast was recorded on April 19, 2016. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.